Hello, welcome to the Bright Club Southampton podcast. Uh, I am your host, Dave Christensen. Uh, this is episode 12, uh, so thank you for listening. If this is your first time here, I'll just give you a quick intro to what we're doing. So, Bright Club is a comedy night. Uh, we put it on about every three months in Southampton, and uh, we get researchers or academics, or just people with kind of interests in sort of uh, academic subjects, and we get them to do some stand-up comedy about those subjects. And then, for this podcast, we get those people back in and we chat to them and we find out a bit more about their research and a bit more about them and just a bit more about the life of an academic, I guess. Um, or, uh, yeah, find the, the truth behind the jokes, I guess. Um, and, uh, and also, there are clips of the jokes in here, so it's not all too heavy and serious. So this week, we have uh, Andrea interviewing Chris Allen. And uh, Chris is a nurse, um, and, uh, and also researches stuff about the internet and um, how we might be able to use the internet to um, improve treatment of patients, or improve the lives of patients. And uh, I don't want to give any more spoilers, so um, it's a good one though. Here it is. Hi Chris, welcome. Um, let's start with the first question. Sure. Okay, could you tell us a little bit about your research and how did you arrive to your sure, sure. research? So my research is looking at how people use, people with a long-term health conditions such as diabetes, Parkinson's, heart disease, use the internet, uh, mostly online communities, but any aspects of the internet really to help them manage a long-term condition in everyday life. Um, Previously to this, there's been an awful lot of research that's looked at um, the role of social networks, so offline social networks, in helping people to manage a long-term condition. Uh, there's some research that about people who have a long-term condition spend only about three hours of a year uh, actually talking to a health, an actual healthcare professional about their condition, uh, and the rest of it is actually managed in their own personal networks with friends, family, uh, carers. Uh, but this research hasn't really been updated to an age where people do a lot of things on the internet. So we think of people, you know, having a carer, they send their carer off to the shops, they go and do their shopping for them. But it hasn't really been explored in an area where, you know, an age when people can, like, do a lot of their online shopping themselves. And then that kind of online shopping actually performs in a kind of a care function, because it's actually allowing them to maintain their independence. Um, so what I'm actually trying to do is looking at the context of this, what we call illness work, so the things that other people are doing to support illness management in the age when everyone's very networked and they can use the internet for all sorts of different and interesting things, whether it be connecting with people with the same condition or whether it be uh, planning their day better around the research they're doing on the internet or connecting with their friends and families to ask them for support using those kind of technologies. Okay. 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 And how did you develop your interest for this subject? Uh, What's your background? So it's kind of a, uh, I'm a clinical academic, so what that means is I spend half of my week working in a, in a practice setting. Uh, so I work as a, as a nurse for the COPD service, uh, working in pulmonary rehabilitation, and then the other half of my time is doing, doing research. And when I was doing my master's, I, I did a bit of research on uh, the use of online communities to combat loneliness in older people. Okay. And one of the recurring themes was that it was helping people 
uh, you know, connect with their family who might have moved away, you know, work colleagues after retirement. But they're also getting kind of sort of illness support as well through these communities. So they might announce that they've they've been diagnosed with cancer and they get lots of support from people uh, based on them saying on the internet they've been diagnosed with this. So they get support from their own social network. So then I kind of thought, or, or, you know, this needs to be explored in, in more detail to see actually the mechanisms that exist in these online communities, be it through people who they already know or people who they, they don't know but they are trying to make contact with, that actually support them to manage a, manage a condition in daily life. And is your background in social science or in yeah. informatics? So I don't have a background in informatics and such. I did do an ITA level okay. <laughs> a long time ago. So my background, I, my undergraduate was in nursing uh, and then I did a master's degree in gerontology, which is a sort of social sciences yeah. degree. Uh, and then the PhD is under sort of like the brackets of um, health sciences, but I, I see it very much as a sort of like a dig digital medical sociology is okay. where I kind of see my... PhD being positioned. Have you ever heard that song though? No, 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 no one's heard it either. Yeah. <laughs> that absolute gift to the world, Friday by Rebecca Black. Oh. Yeah? Okay. What are the words? <laughs> well, there's. Oh, I'm not going to say it. I mean, that's the one of my capabilities. Um, but what that is, this talk's all really about the internet. And what that song shows is one girl, 13 years old, with an idea and £4,000 of her mother's money <laughs> was able to create a video that on YouTube has been seen 166 million times. Now this, this is going on YouTube, isn't it? Is this going on YouTube? Yeah. Okay, so I'll be happy with 10. So this, this table here, if you could just please watch it on YouTube, then that would be good. Um, but it also, interestingly, that, that places it in the top 20 most watched YouTube videos of all time. Interestingly as well, it's also been disliked thumbs down 2.4 million times, <laughs> which puts it in a unique position. It's both one of the most popular YouTube videos of all time, and also one of the most negatively received ones. If 2.5 million people thumb this down, I think I'll spend the rest of my life under a rock, and you'll never see me again, so please don't do that, okay? To me, obviously, that shows that the internet is very divisive, but it also shows that it offers anyone, no matter who they are, a 13-year-old girl in America, the opportunity to create content and to share with the world. Obviously, she needed £4,000 of her mother's money as well. Which How do you see your career? So you're not a PhD student, right? I'm a PhD student. Oh, I'm you a PhD are. Student, okay. I work in clinical practice two days a week as well. Okay. So the idea behind those kind of roles, so what we're, we're, called, we're called clinical academic fellows, so we are sort of registered healthcare professionals, so I'm a registered nurse, um, and we also do research on top of our role. Okay. So we do two days a week working in clinical practice, so my role, I've had different roles actually, so when I first started off that role I was in stroke care, um, and then I moved into clinical education. Uh, my current role is working with the community CRPD team, and I work in a, an area called uh, pulmonary rehabilitation, okay. which is for people with uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, which is quite relevant actually to the, to the research that I'm doing because the research I'm doing is all about how we can support people to make those kind of social connections with their social networks, be it online or offline. Uh, and people with any chronic condition, um, their social ne networks often get smaller. They're, you know, they're less able to go out uh, and socialise with people. So their social network often ends up with being their very close ties and they lose a lot of these kind of, um, these kind of weaker ties but that can still provide 
some forms of social capital, you know, like important recommendations uh, about how to do things, you know, they can provide potentially employment opportunities. Um, so one of the challenges is, is, is helping people who've got a long-term condition to try and have a, a more diverse social network so they are more likely to get support from people. Um, so COPD is obviously a, it's a, it's a chronic lung disease uh, and it causes people to become increasingly short of breath uh, doing activities. So they, they have this, what they call this kind of cycle of decline. So um, you feel short of breath because you're doing an activity and it's not very nice feeling short of breath. So you do slightly less of what you were doing because you don't want to be short of breath. And that causes your muscles to then sort of become less efficient, um, which means when you do something else, you become even more short of breath than you would have been, and then your muscles become even so more efficient. It's like a loop, like a cycle of inactivity. Um, so providing, essentially, by, and that's part of what pulmonary rehabilitation is, is this is an exercise program with also some self-management education. And the idea behind it is that by making people do exercise to the extent where they feel breathless, you're improving their muscle quality, uh, which means that when they do things in their house, you know, when they do things that they need to in their house, such as go up a flight of stairs or they go on a walk, um, they're less likely to feel breathless, um, which means they can participate more. Yep. Um, so I'd quite like to sort of take this kind of experience there onto my next role. So I'm going to be I'm going to be lecturing in nursing is where I'm going from okay. from here. Uh, and I'm actually leaving the university in a couple of months to do that somewhere else. Um, Where about? Uh, Portsmouth, Portsmouth oh. University. But I would like my kind of research to go into the kind of like, into that kind of sphere. So looking at how health groups, the health healthcare organisations can link up better with kind of like, I guess, you know, like the, the, the communities and club world so like football teams mm-hmm. and stuff like you know walking football men in sheds how we can make better connections between healthcare and community activities okay uh, so like you know look, the thing is it's, I mean the good example is an overweight gentleman who's been recently diagnosed with type 2 diabetes goes to his GP and the GP tells him he needs to lose weight um, there's a limit to that if they haven't given them any ways that they can potentially lose weight and if they haven't given them ways that they can lose weight based around their interests. So uh, I would imagine a lot of guys would prefer to go and maybe do walking football where they might get some support from other people yeah, than sure. maybe join a gym and do it in isolation. Um, but there doesn't seem to be much of a process in terms of how that's joined up at the moment. Um, and it would be quite nice... Again, I wonder if it's a, it's a question of governance, that the people are worried that if you then refer someone on to, say, men in sheds, which could be really... You know, men in sheds is something that they've done in Australia, and the idea behind it is you could have older, older, older gentlemen or even younger gentlemen working on a community DIY project together. And the idea is because you don't have that face-to-face interaction because you're doing, you know, you're hammering a nail in or you're doing some filing, um, you don't have that awkwardness of eye contact and you're not there to talk about health but they feel that men might therefore be more likely to open up about health problems okay because they're doing the shared community activity together say you know using a hammer or something so they're bonding therefore bonding, they feel more yeah. and it might yeah they feel more confident in each other's company they don't have the awkwardness of eye contact they don't have the awkwardness of you know missed utterances that you might have if you were literally just sat there talking to someone about your health condition mm-hmm. um but the dilemma with a healthcare professional referring someone onto the same men who sheds is if I refer someone there and they put a nail through their hand, 
you know, and they all have a, you know, some kind of, kind of accent like that. Am I responsible for, for referring them on to that? Obviously, these, these groups have their own health and safety Regulation, regulations yeah. anyway, but there is this fear that if you've been the one that's told them to go and do this activity and something then goes wrong, are you, are you in some way liable? So I'd like to look at how these kind of services can be better joined up um, okay. so that a healthcare professional could... And it wouldn't, ha- it wouldn't be prescriptive because the person has to feel like they're making the decision to go to that place themselves. So rather than me telling you, right, you're going to go to walk in football, it would be good if I could present you a range of options based on what you enjoy doing and you could hopefully, with me, pick one okay. that you'd quite like to do. So I'd find out a little bit more about you, what you like to do. Sure, yeah. And then I could give you a couple of options sort of around those interests. And that potentially makes you more likely to go to it as well, I would potentially say. Yeah. Okay. Hi. My name is Chris. Is it still on? Um, and I'm a male nurse, or more specifically, I'm a nurse who just happens to be male. I've heard many of the jokes before, so I assure you I've heard all of them. One thing is for sure, though, is no one has ever compared me to Indiana Jones. <laughs> Uh, okay, so before I'm doing, I'm doing research on the internet how people use the internet to help them manage illness. Um, before doing this, I had did a master's in gerontology at the university, and the one thing that showed me is actually quite a nice problem to have, but we do have a really bad problem with people getting really old. In fact, that's not actually true, because Einstein, Newton, I've forgotten the other ones, Darwin, they all lived until their 70s and 80s. What is probably more accurate is more people are being given the opportunity to reach old age. Which is brilliant, but it's also obviously going to create a big challenge. So our brilliant NHS, which I'm sure you're all really brilliant. How's about the NHS? That was created in a world and a time that is very different to what it is now. So people then died of infectious diseases. They didn't generally live long enough to get the kind of chronic conditions that the NHS now has to deal with. So it's brilliant that people are getting older, but it's obviously going to create more challenges. And we need to find ways that people can use existing support networks and the internet to help them manage their condition. So I'm sure you'll all agree I've got a bit of a challenge, because health, the internet, and comedy are obviously not very good bedfellows. (laughs) So instead, I'm going to talk more broadly about the internet and how some of the peculiarities of how we use it might help support someone manage a long-term condition. Since you're researching a more useful way to use the internet to make life life easier for people who are actually disadvantaged. Could you tell us three things you like of the internet and three things you don't like of the internet? Okay. So, I mean, obviously if you've seen the video, you'll know that cats and cat videos are something that I enjoy spending a lot of time. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good way of actually not wasting time, but actually kind of unwinding from the real world, especially in the context of cats where you can actually... Uh, get your political news actually in a, in a much more sedate manner um, rather than seeing all the stress of actually real politics you can have it okay. aimed at you in, in kind of like a more easily more easily digestible fashion um, I also love the fact that the internet gives everyone a voice um, in theory you can tweet to the president and the president can tweet back and I think that's quite a remarkable thing uh, there have been consequences to that I can't remember what country it is where someone tweeted the president something nasty and he tweeted something back really nasty and it ends up the guy had to go into hiding you know the, you can see how these things on the internet end up escalating so i do think it's a massive benefit that the little guy can speak to the big guy on the internet and everyone has a voice um also the political engagement of the internet as well 
so people can come together. They can almost form little unions um, uh, rather than just one person challenging something. They could have a, a group of people challenging something together in like a coordinated way. So I think it's also a benefit. Negatives, I think the filter bubbles, and you can see it every time there's like a, an election. Uh, you end up on your Facebook feed just getting fed articles that confirm your your beliefs and you end up never getting challenged. Um, yeah. So based on what Facebook and Google knows about me, if I do a Google search, it will show me articles and, and news that it thinks I want to read. Uh, and I, I could end up spending hours on the internet and never have my beliefs challenged. Okay. I just see lots and lots of articles that confirm what I already think. So I think that's a danger. And you can see, certainly see how people end up getting trapped in their kind of beliefs because they never see anything on the internet that challenges that. Yep. Um, obviously, there's all sorts of other stuff on the internet as well, all the sort of nasty sides of the internet. Okay. So where people are more disinhibited, they might be nastier to each other. I spend a lot of time on the internet because I'm researching it. And that can be really quite distracting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the right kind of way. No, it's anyone, anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of Twitter. Who's a big fan of Twitter in here? Yeah. Yeah. The first few years of my PhD, I loved spending time on Twitter. I loved hearing about celebrities, finding out what they're up to. Rebecca Black, the singer of that song, love following her. My favourite football club, Southampton, love following them. Love speaking to complete strangers about the transfer news. Love it. I'm not so fond of Facebook. Who here likes Facebook? Mixed response. I've got to the kind of age now where most of my um, friends are either getting married, uh, buying their first house, or having a child. And like, you know, there's only so many pictures of toddlers with mushy peas smeared all over their face that one person can tolerate. Twitter, on the other hand, is a real force of pleasure. I love it, and it's a good way of distracting myself. Well, I should say I love dicks. That was until 2016, and in 2016 everything started to go wrong, as I'm sure you're all very much aware of. I'm not party political. Before I started studying the internet, I wouldn't even say I really knew a lot about politics. I used to think the right wing was just the correct way to prepare a chicken. <laughs> so, overall, do you think, on a daily usage, the internet is well used or badly used by the layman? Um, I think the layman. I, I actually, I actually think we don't give some people enough credit for how they use the internet. I actually think most most people are educated enough and aware enough and have good enough literacy to be able to work out what is facts and what is fiction. But you obviously do see these pictures; they're shared really widely, and it's it's from both sides of the political spectrum. It's on all sorts of different things. The the, the classic one that keeps getting shared at the moment I've seen is the uh, the delivery man delivering crates of moe outside what is supposedly the new number 10, which was actually taken about 10 years ago in, in, in the Gordon Brown administration. But it's had the picture and it's had the words that's taken it completely out of context. And people have shared it because it's like, that's, that, 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 that goes in line with my, what, my opinions. And they, they haven't done any research to sort of actually authenticate what they're sharing and work out whether it's actually valid. Um, I do, however, think that most people are are sensible and most people can analyse what they're seeing on the internet and, and most people from what I've seen in our research at the moment in terms of health they kind of triangulate the information so they'll see something on the internet they think yeah that's quite interesting they might take that little bit of research talk to their doctor about it and together with their doctor they'll come to kind of a, a sensible choice on what treatment they're going to have um, and this is I think this is kind of what we we should really be moving to in, in, in some ways like you know you have such limited amount of time with your doctor if you go to see a GP you've got about 10 minutes 
speaking to them. If you can already do a bit of the groundwork and find out roughly what you should be doing yourself, take that information to your GP. Together with your GP, come to uh, you know a sensible decision about what you should be doing. That is real. You know, that's real patient empowerment, isn't it? And that's actually helping people to really come to the come come to uh, come up with a lot of ideas and solutions themselves. Um, that's definitely the model we should be looking towards. I've seen some cups um, that people have had ordered online that said. Um, at what point do you think your 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 Google search is the same as my as my medical degree? Uh, and you have to wonder who are these people that feel so um, insecure in their role, almost that they feel that, that that someone coming to them with a Google search is a bad thing. And you know that should be seen as a, seen as a good thing. So seen as you know, a patient is being empowered to try and come up with some solutions for themselves. Obviously, they there, there needs to be safeguards in place. Uh, to make sure they they are doing things that have good evidence behind them, but I certainly think patients being able to look at things themselves it should be seen as a good thing. Okay. So from your video, we can get quite clearly you like cats, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Do you have a cat? Yeah, yeah, we have a little cat. He's actually in one of the videos called uh, Philip, and that actually was a picture of our, our cat at the vet as well. So you mentioned before how using cats, for example, animals in general can just release some stress behind yeah, yeah. those some news and some difficult arguments, let's say. Have you ever considered to use this in building awareness about disabilities or doing your work in general? Well, there's some work in, I mean, my, my, the, t- the research team within which my research is situated actually looks at people's wider networks in terms of how they get support for condition management. And they've done quite a few bits of research now on the role of pets and the role of animals in helping people to manage their condition. Uh, there was a paper published quite recently that looked at the role of pets in terms of mental illness uh, and the supportive role they can have, you know, in terms of the almost the non-reciprocal support that they yeah. give. So you, you come home and no matter what, what's happened, they'll show love. You don't necessarily have to show them an awful lot of love back. Uh, and also the fact that dogs you can take for walks and that gets you chatting to other dog owners. It's a reason to go for a walk, which obviously for some people is very important if they're staying in the house more than normal. Um, but also on that walk, they might then, through the dog, connect with other people that could then eventually provide them support. So yeah. I think there is a, definitely a role in terms of animals in, in people's wider networks in terms of supporting illness. Okay. Because spending a lot of the time on the internet can make you really angry about politics. I wake up, look outside, beautiful day, get washed, get changed, walk into work, sun in the sky, breathe in my face, get to work, turn on my computer, everything's all right in the world at this stage, turn on my computer, upload Twitter, and suddenly I'll be reminded that actually the world is a terrible, terrible place, and we're all about to die. <laughs> and I, you know, I couldn't carry on like this, I have a thesis to write, I can't carry on living in that kind of that stressful situation. So I decided to disengage from this kind of human Twitter reality, and I started following all these Twitter cats. I don't know if anyone else follows Twitter cats. No? So the first cat I started following was a, 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 a lady, actually, a lady called Felix. Has anyone heard of Felix, the Huddersfield train cat? No? That's, that, that was going to sink, that, isn't it? No one's heard of her. 
So she is a cat that got promoted, so she's got a proper job. She got promoted to a senior pest controller at Huddersfield train station. She got a coat, she got a badge. Uh, and I actually sent her a tweet at the time congratulating her on her promotion. She's called Felix because they thought she was a chap, but she's actually a lady they later discovered. Um, and I got intoxicated by these Twitter cats, I followed more and more of them. And, and suddenly the world was a nice place again. I, you know, I was seeing cats on skateboards, uh, cats in Christmas trees, grumpy cats, science cats. It was, it was brilliant. But like I said, I got greedy and I overconsumed these cats. <laughs> Why did you decide to join Bright Club and to have your show? No, that's an interesting question actually. Because um, I don't know if I'd seen it before I did my show. I'd seen a couple of YouTube videos. I previously chatted with Dave after we did uh, a pint of science. Um, I enjoyed pint of science, but I quite like the idea of Bright Club in the fact of the training that you get for it. Um, I think we've become incredibly reliant on PowerPoint. So when I set up uh, pint of science, I had this idea that all the researchers would be able to come into this room and talk about their research without any PowerPoints. And it became quickly apparent how difficult that was for a lot of people actually to be able to just come with a, not even a script, but come and talk about the aids of kind of PowerPoints and the things that we've become really used to. And kind of like 30 years ago, people wouldn't have had PowerPoints, so they've just had to do a, a lecture with flip charts and uh, overhead projectors and the limited resources. So actually, I think Brightcup actually teaches you to talk about your research in a, in a fun and engaging way, away from the kind of really traditional PowerPoint presentations. Mm -hmm. But it's also a really good way to disseminate your research to the people who are ultimately paying for it. You know, most of our research is publicly funded, um, and most of the public won't have access to journals. Or if they did have access to journals, the journals aren't typically written in a way that is easy for the for lay people to understand. But and actually performing it in, in this kind of way allows people to hear a little bit about your research, a little bit about you, and hopefully then make that connection with the university. And what were the things you found? most challenging on in preparing your sh your show your set i left it quite to the last minute which is probably not what i should be saying <laughs> so uh, and then i wrote way more than i needed to write uh, and then it took me a long time to edit it down to what was meant to be six minutes but ended up being about 12. Um, i also found it quite intimidating doing it in a pub with lots of people obviously i've never i've never talked in that kind of environment before uh, about research in an area that it's not desperately easy to tailor around comedy. Um, so that, that, that was the, the biggest challenge, which is obviously why I ended up going on and talking about sure. cats and Trump and Brexit. Um, but bringing it back into the, the context of my research. But I think, yeah, it's, it's important that the university does stuff like this in order to actually help people outside the research, outside of the university, find out a bit more about research, what's going on at the university, uh, okay. and what they can be involved with. Eventually, Twitter, and it's built a bubble, everyone's aware of the filter bubble of Twitter and how it makes you see things that maybe aren't quite reality, but it's what you believe in, recommended that I follow a cat called Larry. I have got a picture of Larry. I have to be honest, the signs were there. That it's my, oh, that's not Larry, that's my cat. Uh, <laughs> I have to be honest, the signs were there that this might become a problem. So that is, uh, Larry the cat with David Cameron. We've already talked about David Cameron and the animals. I have been assured by Larry that there has been no further business there. <laughs> uh, and after a while of following uh, Larry, I then got introduced by Twitter to another cat called Gladstone, who lives next door to Larry. He's the number 11 cat. They're both mousers. 
Uh, anyway, pretty with this going. So as I was playing more and more of these cats, I started to notice, actually, a lot of them were talking about politics. <laughs> I started to learn a lot of interesting things. So I learned that Garfield has some really quite strong political views that I'm not quite sure I agree with. But Gladstone has some really interesting insights into the transatlantic trade agreement. <laughs> How do you see your research in the near or far future? How do you see it? I mean, developing the interesting evolving. one of the interesting results that seems to be coming out from my research is interesting for from what I can see, my research is the only bit that's looked at this online community, you know, the role of the internet that actually looks at it in the context of what's already available offline. A lot of the research into online communities has focused entirely on that interaction and I haven't looked at the kind of the role of offline support and vice versa. And it it seems that even though one of the big benefits of the internet is obviously that it's this massive global village so that you can go and talk to someone in America, if you have a shared interest, you can go and talk to someone in Australia who might be up at the same time as you. Even though it does have that massive benefit of being a global village, when it has its biggest benefit is when it's rooted in local communities. So, you know, I, I, there's one of the ladies I interviewed, she was really struggling with support. She went on, on a community which was actually an international community and by pure chance, the last person who had posted lived about three miles away from her. So she then went yeah. and met this woman offline, you know, physical, face-to-face, -face, formed a relationship with her. Her and this woman then went on and formed this physical, face-to-face -face community with other people with the same conditions. And now they share transport to hospitals. Uh, you know, they support themselves each other with shopping. So even though the, one of the big benefits of the internet is it's this, you know, this big global thing, Actually, I think it, sh it has particular relevance when it's rooted in local communities and it can mean local support is realised. There's this quite interesting social media uh, platform called Up My Street or something where you can, you can, you can, it's a social media platform exclusively for people that live in the same postcode. Uh, and I think it would be quite interesting to see, and you can, apparently you can draw up this map and you can see all the houses that are green are people that signed up to the service and all the houses that are red are not signed up to the service. And I think it would be quite interesting to see how online communities like that could actually facilitate kind of offline social capital you know the exchange of uh you know the exchange of support uh, in sure. your local community and that's when it you know becomes so much more tangible yeah. and so much more beneficial to people and actually that might increase you know the, the the old kind of paradox of the internet isn't it is that it's a socially assistive technology that actually isolates people and this kind of thing could actually challenge that. It could be actually, it is a socially assistive technology and it actually brings communities together and increases community cohesion because it gives them a really fluent way to communicate and, and discuss, with, you know, and form those bonds with each other. Mm -hmm. um, sure. So I think that's where I'd like my research to go in the future, looking at the role of online communities and supporting community cohesion and community support offline. I mean, if you think about it, you know, a, a, a brand new, Tower block, you know, the ones they have in um in, in Wolstead, you know, the ones mm -hmm. they've just shot up. Suddenly, you know, housing like five hundred people. There might be problems with that tower block. Having a social media group for that whole block allows all those residents to kind of lobby the people that have built those yeah, blocks sure. uh, to try and make sure things are fixed. Uh, you, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have had that twenty years ago. So, do you foresee a possible, let's say, application, quotes and quotes? or less serious disease like, let's say, if I've got a cough, I know how to treat myself so I don't have to overload my GP and yeah. spend half an hour just on a queue there. 
Well, that's the thing. The, I think the NHS has tried these things, haven't they? Like NHS, NHS Direct, you know, they, they've tried to get that kind of, um, the kind of feeling that patients can sort of self-manage their condition without, well, so it's more self-care when they haven't got a diagnosed condition. So if they do have a cough, what can they do themselves to prevent them having to go into, uh, you know, going to see a doctor or going to A&E? Um, and that seems to have worked to some extent. Um, I think the other benefit of people with a long-term condition, say for example diabetes, is that is a lot of the information that healthcare professionals give them is kind of quite um, crowded in sort of governance, uh, and there's only so many recommendations that healthcare professionals can give. And actually, sometimes the recommendations that other patients can give are more useful uh, to some extent. So, say if you have diabetes and you want to go out drinking with your your friends, um, but you want to be able to manage that. Then actually, the the advice the healthcare professionals give you around that, that they've got to be quite careful with that. Of course. Whereas someone with a, a who also has diabetes can share that information, maybe a bit more easily, and they can share exp- their experiences of doing that and what's worked for them, what hasn't worked for them. Obviously, there's limitations to that as well. Yeah, because this could escalate very quickly, yeah. and bad medicine can kick in at, yeah. at any time. But yeah, so it's, it's, it's that trade-off, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, of course. Between patient empowerment and then... Over time though, I noticed that actually my timeline had less of these cats on skateboards and Christmas trees and doing nice things. And I had more and more of these cats being really angry and shouting at each other about politics. Always in capital letters, which of course is the internet's way of swearing. Uh, not swearing, shouting, sorry, I missed my line there. Um, and they, they started shouting at all sorts of things. So. There were cats shouting at other cats because cats felt left behind by globalisation. <laughs> there, were, there were cats shouting at other cats because they felt there was a need to have better control of garden borders. I even noticed science cat getting heckled because another cat didn't believe his theory about not evolution. No, I've got that wrong. Uh, uh, he didn't believe in his global warming theories and felt that he they no longer needed experts in the world. So. I, got, you know, this, this, I then realised that actually I was back to where I started. I woke up, everything was fine in the world, looked up the sky, beautiful day, got dressed, got showered, no, got showered, got dressed, walked into world, lovely day. <laughs> Turned on my computer and suddenly I was once again reminded that in fact the world is a terrible place and we are all going to die. But this time it wasn't humans doing it, it was cats. So my Twitter feed started to resemble what an uh, Animal Farm sequel would look like if George Orwell had been to be able to ride on it. So I, I kind of got rid of the cats because I just, you know, on my mental health was important. And I started following these, which are, uh, and I've been assured they're not political in any way. So these, these are called silky chickens. Um, so once again, all that has been restored uh, in my world, and I'm, I'm living quite a nice life again. Uh, blissfully unaware of all the horrors that go on in the world. So, do you think those services should be organised by? private sector, charity combined with public sector, or do you think one of them should take responsibility of it? I mean, it's, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because it, it again goes to back to the governance argument, doesn't it, in terms of what people are reading or how they're taking into account information. Um, the people that I've been interviewed have used a, a variety of resources. So they, they, uh, there's this whole kind of genre thing of the social media platforms they're using. So, I mean, one lady I interviewed, she had a kind of like a, almost like a separate identity on her Twitter feed where she just talked about her illness with other people who had the same condition uh, and exchanged advice and support. Um, and then on her Facebook, she'd have more kind of, a, you know, her non-illness specific network, so like her family and friends. 
Uh, and even though there was no nothing stopping her family and friends reading the stuff on Twitter, she actually said that she'd be you know embarrassed. You know she'd be she wouldn't want them to read that. So it's actually interesting that she's created kind of like these different genres yeah. in different areas of the internet. And this is. It's, it's quite interesting, it's almost like a polymedia, is what some people call it. So there are, there's different areas of the internet that people perform different things in. Uh, and there is sometimes a bit of overlap, um, uh, but sometimes these are really, you know, quite isolated. Um, there's also these things, these forums that actually, in terms of to have, to be useful, they have to have kind of like a critical mass. So there's, a, you know, some of the forums that people have talked about that have been set up by charities have had very limited amounts of pe- other peers in them so there hasn't been enough conversation it's then more intimidating to join um, it, it, it is true there seems to be lots of complex reasons why people pick a particular group that they want to be involved with but there does seem to be some kind of homophily you know people you know people will radiate to people that they identify as being relatively similar to themselves so whether it's a similar age similar condition similar interests outside of health so whether you know the, they, 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 the topics of conversation on these groups will extend way beyond health and well-being you know that'd be things like football teams uh, and there is an argument that those kind of conversations that are around not around illness specifically might actually act as kind of like a hook for continued engagement so you know they're getting this information and the support related to their condition but maybe it is the aspects of everyday life such as football such as films that actually keep people going back and getting you know getting more support in this way. Um, certainly, as well, a lot of people once they've kind of got the information, you know, they might be newly diagnosed and they might have gone to this community to get a lot of support, a lot of information during a time that was very difficult when they were trying to collect information, work out what they should be doing. But once they've done that and their self management is kind of is, is a bit more stable, their role in that group might then change and they might go from someone who's maybe receiving more support to being someone that's then giving more support and that obviously gives them a lot of uh, validation and a lot of a a feeling of meaning that they're actually supporting people to come through. Um, So it's it's difficult to really know who who is best to provide that support Uh, and a lot of it is individual, the kind of places that people radiate to. Um, A lot of people have also said that they don't like uh, the internet is, is this great place to be able to vent frustrations I mean, you could go into a room and just yell and there's no there's no feeling that anyone's actually listening whereas on the internet even if no one is directly listening it always gives this assumption that there is someone there listening to what you're saying and that can end up creating quite a lot of, sort of negativity in these spaces particularly around something that's really frustrating like being unwell or, or not managing your condition as well as your life or, or not being able to go out to your friends you know, participate in things that you used to enjoy um, so obviously it's frustrating and the internet provides this really good platform for, to be able to vent frustrations um, but a lot of people have said that they don't they, they find that negativity quite hard to deal with uh, okay. when they're using these places and they prefer to go to a community that's more positive um, so where people put a positive spin on things and share positive solutions, obviously it, it depends on where you're at with your condition and what kind of support you're after. Um, so it, it's difficult. I, I, I definitely think that in the future, if, if those kind of communities are going to be set up by, say, the NHS or a charity, um, they, they should be rooted in local communities, I think. So there is a benefit to having a big online community that is, is global and has global reach. But actually, in terms of what support is most useful for people, I think actually something that's more locally. Okay. 
locally related is probably more beneficial um, because then like a support can potentially extend to offline support as well where obviously you get more tangible okay. support. Anyway, um, one important thing I've learned, I haven't actually got a lot to said a lot about my research, one important thing I've learned during my research is that these Twitter cats aren't actually real. <laughs> well, they are real, they are real, but Twitters can't actually use Twitter. No, cats can't actually use Twitter. <laughs> actually, and it's, it's important, this is an important bit of uh, advice. I've learned that actually having a Twitter cat can be really quite a lucrative business. So being quite a poor student, I, I saw a business opportunity. Uh, so this is actually our cat. Myself and my wife, who's up there, this is our cat, his name's Philip. And I, I know what you're all thinking, who is this sadistic bastard that takes a picture of his cat getting an injection? <laughs> this was actually his first foray in uh, becoming a Twitter cat. This was a. Uh, this is actually is generally my cat. Um, it's, he started an advert for a local vet about the importance of cats getting their vaccinations. Um, he hasn't been back, and he's not going on Twitter at the moment because the moment he released that on Twitter, he started getting trolled by lots of members of the anti-cat vaccination movement. So, is it something that? The big IT companies like Google and many others are looking are looking into. Well, there are some there are some big kind of um, uh, for profit uh, organisations like the Health Unlocked. Um, I don't know if that's for profit actually, but they they certainly are not supported by the charities. Will have uh, the charities will have a a forum within that bigger community called Health Unlocked. Um, a lot of the diabetes charities have their own forums. Um, uh, it, uh, it would be there, there's a lot of information on there, so I should imagine there would be a private company that would be, but then that also means that patient, you know, people on those forums are then more, you know, they're more at risk. Kind of like direct marketing, all that kind of stuff. Of course, is, yeah. you know, then more fair game if it's in a private, if it's in a privately owned arena, you could have the you know the direct consumer marketing that could so, end up just. From this misuse of this potential potential misuse of those platforms, um, how serious should be taken the risk of misuse in terms of bad medication taken mm. from advices found in those platforms in those communities and so on? Well, I mean, it's obviously a it's obviously a concern. Um, I do think the majority of patients do have good literacy who use the internet um, have good literacy. But there are obviously going to be some that will, especially when the people are desperate as well. So um, you know what, what what might be working not working for them. They're looking for solutions. They're looking for answers. And um, the kind of things that they're finding on the internet might not be evidence based, but they might present as possible solution to what they're going through. Uh, and they might therefore be more likely to take risks that they weren't previously able to do. I think that the challenge is making you know increasing people's digital literacy, increasing people's medical literacy as well. So they can find information, they can digest it, they can work out whether it's sensible, uh, they can feel like they can be supported, take it to a medical professional, you know, like their GP, discuss it with them, and together uh, they can come up with a solution about how they should be managing their, their okay. condition. So do you think something like um, GP approved social network could be useful? Let's say you go to your GPs and he or she may say, okay, next time, first look at this 
I'm sure those information are correct. Yeah. Kind of I mean, it's also difficult, isn't it? Because one of the one of the endearing features of the internet is there is no overall authorizing body. So you know, one of the reasons why people often feel that they can talk and because there is no kind of hierarchy. There's no, yeah, everyone's the same level and everyone can exchange experiences. So I think there is a there is a risk that actually if you have this kind of overly moderated group, then you lose some of that. The, the okay. benefits of having a flattened hierarchy where everyone can talk and everyone is sort of equal, but obviously it does provide some safeguards. There's certainly a good, you know, a good admin on the groups that can make sure that the topics are, are sensible and the information being exchanged is is, is evidenced sure. uh, and has a. I mean, a lot of the sites do have a, an admin that will make sure that when any information is shared, they share the source of that information so that people can go and find out the where that where that information came from and they can validate it for themselves. Um, it would also be quite costly as well having a kind of like a, a forum that is constantly monitored by healthcare professionals. But some of them do do it. So some of the diabetes ones, as far as I'm aware, do have healthcare professional administrators. Okay. Um, it might maybe all be the topic of the conversation a bit more different. Is is, is sure, the, yeah. Is the fear with that maybe? So you probably noticed that actually I'm very good at procrastinating online. Like, you know, I can waste awful amount of time online. I do do some research. I am meant, I am meant to be doing less time online and more time writing up papers now. Um, but like I'm sure many of you, you, we all have our established routines, don't we, on the internet? Ways of wasting time and not doing work. And mine will start with me coming to the office, turning on my computer, waiting for that to load up because someone over there has turned it off to save energy. Um, and then while I'm doing that, I'll stare outside, and then I'll start worrying about Trump. <laughs> and then I'll sigh. I'll load up a Word document and I'll stare at its Arctic blankness for a little while. <laughs> then I'll look out the window again, another big sigh. I'll load up Twitter, load up YouTube, watch a cat video. You might have noticed I like gas. <laughs> and then I'll worry about Trump again, another big sigh, another look at my Word document. And then eventually I'll go out on Amazon and, and buy a toaster. <laughs> uh, and I actually did buy a toaster the other day, it was very interesting. Uh, just a normal toaster, grey, two slits, you put bread in it and in time it becomes toast, nothing special. Uh, but one thing I did notice, which is unique actually, well it's not unique actually, it's all over Amazon, is I noticed that 300 people, actually over 300 people, had done a review for this toaster. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, who are these people? <laughs> who are these heroes without cape that dedicate their free time to reviewing toasters so the rest of us mere mortals can make good decisions about buying them? <laughs> and I thought to myself, I I've never actually felt the need to review anything on Amazon, but, but maybe I should. Maybe this altruism and this digital free labour is actually what drives the internet. And you know, and means there's so much useful information that all of us can use and can consume. Toaster manufacturers can obviously list their specifications, but they're probably not the best people to tell you how well that toaster actually performs in real life. And this is where it gets you back to my research on the health and the internet. If this is the same kind of information that could perhaps be really useful to someone managing a condition. So doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals can tell people what their condition is and what medication it needs. But they're probably not the best people to tell people what it's like to experience living with that condition. That experience is probably best portrayed by people who also have the same condition. And that is there where the strength of peer-to-peer -peer online support might exist. And that leads me to conclude, I don't know if you conclude in comedy, 
And in terms of comedy, um, that leads me to conclude that actually these peer-to-peer -peer online support groups might actually be the most unutilised resource in an ever-strained health service. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> well, that's all. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. Thank Goodbye. You. <laughs> Hello again. Thank you for listening. Uh, and thank you, of course, to Andrea and Chris for giving us their time. In relation to one thing that Chris talked about, um, I'd like to point you towards uh, a, a podcast that I like called Reply All. Um, I'll link in the description to this, I'll link to an episode of theirs that um, uh, covers a topic that Chris touched on, which was uh, about tweeting to a president. There was a South, a South American president, uh, I, uh, I can't remember actually off the top of my head uh, who it was or where it was, but, um, but someone tweeting to them got themselves in trouble or something. I don't remember the story very well. Oh, this is a stupid thing to record onto a podcast, but I'll put the link in. Uh, it's a really good episode on what is generally always a really good podcast. Uh, so I recommend you listen to that. Also, as always, I want to ask you to please follow us on Facebook or, and, or like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and... Send us an email, brightclubsutton at gmail.com. Uh, we've got some training coming up um, in uh, about a week and a half. We have training on Saturday the 19th of August, if you find it. It's on Facebook, um, so you can come along to that. Uh, that's just training for anyone. We want to help people be better public speakers. That's what we're here to do, as well as to have fun. So please come along to that, or tell your friend to come along to that. It's, it's good. And, uh, and yeah, I don't want to take up any more of your time. This was already a long episode. Chris had a lot to say. So, uh, yeah, that's it from me. I hope you're well. Um, yeah, see you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>